Father, we thank you that you love us, that you work by promises and not by our performance, that you work by faith and not our flesh, that you do the sufficient works to accomplish our salvation, and that we just believe and receive a new spirit, a new heart. And God, that that foundation is so important for us to grasp onto with every part of our being that nothing depends on us. Everything depends on your faithfulness, my father, my daddy. You give me all I need through your son. We thank you that we can gather here, worship you with all our hearts and just give you this time. Amen. Amen. All right, well, self-dependence, self-reliance. You can do it. Nike, just do it. Depend on yourself. Never depend on anyone else. Trust yourself. Trust your instincts. Trust your intuition. All of those things are wrong, biblically. But that is what the world pushes. These are the catchphrases of the wildly popular philosophy in our world called humanist psychology. Humanist psychology. It's a, it's a self-centered worldview. Not God-centered, self-centered. And we're going we're gonna to dive into this. And if you've never heard this before, hold on. Grab on, put on your seatbelts. We're going to get into it. Secular humanist psychologists teach that all mental health revolves around understanding and engaging with the unspoiled inner self. That means they think you're a really good person. They think deep down inside you're really good, which is not biblical. The Bible teaches deep down inside we're sinners. It was placed there by Adam and Eve in the garden, and we love rebelling, and we love sinning. That's what the Bible teaches, and God can fix that, but it's, it's, that's the foundation They teach that if you strip yourself of all evil of society and just look inside, you will find good. You will be the hero. Unlimited potential for good. And just how much potential is is shown in the book title that's popular from From, which is called You Shall Be As Gods. That's how good secular humanists think that you are inside. And everything bad inside you that you'll find when you look, they say that's just, that's just outward influences. If you really dig down deep, you'll find the good. It's self-centered. Don't believe me? Harold P. Marley states, to know humanism, first know the self in its relation to other selves. Trust thyself to stand alone. Learn from others, but lean upon no single savior. That's a secular definition of what mental health is and what psychology is to do. It's to help you not lean on a savior. Now, we have a savior, right? But if the world is telling you you don't need a savior, you just need you and you just need mental health and you just need humanistic psychology, What are they really doing? They're waging war on your own ability to receive a savior. 
That's why this is important to study. That's why this is a big deal. Here's a quote from under, under the book, Understanding the Times, The Collision of Today's Competing Worldviews by David Noble. Humanist psychology uh, of self-reliance and self-centeredness. This call to trust ourselves and our natural inclinations is voiced powerfully by Maslow. Quote, since this inner nature is good or neutral rather than bad, it is best to bring it out and to encourage it rather than to suppress it. If it is permitted to guide our life, we will grow healthy, fruitful, and happy. In other words, to become good, we must focus on ourselves and what we want. In fact, humanists believe that self-centeredness is the wave of the future, an entirely new philosophy of life. Rogers, when considering what the philosophy of the future will be like, guesses, quote, it will stress the value of the individual. It will, I think, center itself on the individual as the evaluating agent. Humanist psychologists believe this self-centered attitude is crucial for our individual mental health as well as for the eventual restructuring of society. Only when we accept the need to be completely in control can we tap the unlimited potential of being human. That's this idea of self-centered. Well, this is obviously anti-Christian, anti-Jesus, anti-God. It's where we're at. But some will say, well, it's just being all that God has made you to be. They say you can connect it. You can have the psychology. You can have the self-esteem, the self-reliance, the self-dependence, and God. It's just that's who God made you to be, to be, yeah, be all you can be in the army. But if you look at it, as we study in Genesis, God did not make us that way. God intended us to be dependent and reliant upon and connected with him. Every one of these attitudes of self-sufficiency are against the very nature of God to provide all that we need through a humble, dependent relationship with him through Jesus Christ, his son. God didn't create man to be by himself. The one time he did create man, he said, ooh, that's not good when he's alone, right? He created us for relationships. He created us incomplete. He made you that way, apart from him. And when we're not in relationship with God, we are incomplete and insufficient in our inner being. There is nothing to draw upon that's good in the flesh, in the mind, in any man. You can't go there. There's no resources. You go to the ATM of your heart and say, give me something good, and it comes back insufficient funds. Romans 7, 18 clearly teaches this when it says, for I know that in, my that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. Everybody in the world knows what's good and they want to do what's good. But how to perform what's good, I do not find. When I go to my flesh, the resources are not there. So important for us to understand that, that vital peace. Our thoughts are not good enough. Our hearts are not pure enough. Our intentions are not great enough. Our abilities are not enough. Our efforts are not enough. If it comes to us, it is not enough. If it comes from us, it's not enough. 
Nothing good dwells in our flesh, but that's what the world finds unacceptable about the Bible. And that's why in colleges all over the world today, all over America, they reject the Bible as an authority. Why? Because it goes against this. And you might too. The Bible declares that you are totally spiritually bankrupt, totally evil, bad inside. Not like intel. Inside. Ryan's not even here. That was a Ryan joke. Okay. But God loves us even though we're so bad, even though we're so bankrupt. The ATM constantly, and he's just like, it's okay. I'll give you access to a different account. I'll give you a different account number. The account number of my son. And just wait till you see the balance in that checkbook. If we trust his promises, it's like taking that ATM card by faith and plugging it in. And you have access to the Spirit of God to actually make you good. Well, here we go. Genesis chapter 27. Now it came to pass when Isaac was old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. Anyone in that position? All right. Just want to see if you had any identification with him here. Okay. That he, he called his son Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. Or this is Esau, so he'd be like, here I am. As we know about Esau, man's man, not really interested in spirituality or things of God, but he could hunt and fish. Didn't like to shave. Then he said, behold now, I am old. I know, I do not know the day of my death. Now, therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver and your bow And go out to the field and hunt game for me. And make me savory food such as I love. And bring it that I may eat. And my soul may bless you before I die. We studied about Jacob and Esau, these two twin brothers who couldn't be more different. Both sinners. Dirty, rotten sinners. But Esau was a self-sufficient sinner and Jacob was was a broken, humble sinner. And so God, as he, as probably makes sense to you, chose the broken, humble one. Because that's what God does. He hates pride, because pride he can't do anything with. And, but, he's, uh, uh, but Jacob, he, he's loved and he's chosen by God, even though he's just as much of a sinner. You might think that's unfair, but we had an entire study about uh, what's your jam. It was what it was called about three or four weeks ago. Listen to that if you're confused. Why? You know, because that, uh, sorry. God has already told everybody in this story that Jacob is the one who's going to be blessed, that Jacob is the one who's supposed to receive the blessing. But that's pretty hard to believe and accept if you're just looking at him. His family had given up on that promise. Because if you looked at Jacob, you're like, there's no way he's ever going to amount to anything. He liked cooking and cleaning and crocheting. That's just the type of guy he was. Esau, in his, mind, in his family's eye, they're like, that's the guy who has promise. That's the guy who has the muscles. He's got the beard. Good thing. He has the abilities and the know-how. He has it. He just has it. So 40 years have passed, at least 40 years, 
since they were born. And God said, Jacob is the one I've chosen. 40 years have passed. And the family is just like, man, Esau's it, man. Esau is so much better than Jacob. At least that's Isaac's opinion. But look how each person in the story trusts in their flesh, in their plans, in their ideas. Basically what happens is each person, the four characters in the story, have succumbed to humanistic psychology. We're going to see that in Genesis chapter 27. That's not new. There's nothing new about this humanistic psychology stuff. It's just self-repurposed, repackaged. Isaac thinks he's about to die. He looks at the world around him and says, hey, I'm about to die. Actually, he squints. But he's not. He's going to live at least 43 more years. So right off the bat, he's making poor decisions. Why? Because he's going on what he thinks. His opinion, his non-God opinions shows how much he knows. He wants to pass on the monetary blessing and the responsibility for leading his family to Esau. And he chooses Esau because he likes the type of manly man that Esau is. A hunter, a provider, a go-getter, a man's man. No mental illness here. That's what he's thinking. He thinks that Esau will do a better job. He thinks God made a mistake. That was over 40 years ago. Maybe God forgot about it. Because as it's turned out, I, I must have been drinking something that night and I misheard God when he told me it was going to be Jacob. Because I just don't get how God blesses a humble weakling like that. Isaac is trusting his fleshly opinion more than the word of God. That's the lesson here. Rebecca, his wife, also trusts her flesh. Let's see. Now, Rebecca, verse 5, was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau, his son. And Esau went into the field to hunt the game and bring it. So Rebecca spoke to Jacob, her son, saying, Indeed, I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, Bring me game and make me savory food for me, that I may eat it and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice according to what I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me from there two choice kids of the goats. And I will make savory food from them for your father such as he loves. Then you shall take it to your father that he may eat it and he may bless you before his death. So they each had their favorite, Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac loved Esau, man's man. Rebekah loved Jacob. Maybe she even believed in the promise, but Jacob, we're told, spent a lot of time in the tent. He just hung out with her. But she doesn't trust that promise enough. Because even if she did trust it a little bit, she would allow, if she did trust it, like with her heart, she would allow God to just take care of it, even if it looked impossible or improbable. But here she comes up with a plan to deceive Isaac into blessing Jacob. Isaac and Rebecca both know that what they're doing is wrong. That's why they all, they're all hiding stuff. No trust. No one trusts anyone in this family. This is like a primetime show. Nobody trusts anybody because they're not trusting in the Lord. That's what's going on here. 
See, Rebecca is not honoring God by lying. That never works. Verse 11, then Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, look, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I am smooth-skinned man. <laughs> Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be a deceiver to him. Seem to be? You are planning to be a deceiver, Jacob. Like I said, he's a sinner, <laughs> and I shall bring curse upon myself and not a blessing. But his mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice. Go get them for me. And he went and got them and brought them to his mother. And his mother made savory food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the choice clothes of her elder son Esau, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her son. And then she put skins of the kids of the goats on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she gave the savory food and the bread which she prepared to the hand of her son, Jacob. Remember, Jacob's name means heel catcher or deceiver, trickster. That's what he was called. That's what it came to mean, Jacob. And, and so he has no problem with lying and cheating. Jacob's he's fine with the lying part. His only concern is whether or not it's going to work. That's his only concern here. Oh, what if he finds us out? Oh. Well, David Guzak uh, puts it like this, or he's got a great comment. It says, when we are willing to abandon the question of right and wrong and only concern ourselves with, with what works, we have bought into the modern idea of pragmatism as much of the church has today. Just what works. I know how to have a big church, but I need to be obedient to what God calls me to do. We could have a big church. I could have 800 people here next week. Just say I'm going to light Norm on fire for everyone to see. You know how many people in this neighborhood would come out to see him burning on fire? Oh, man. Easy to get a crowd. Easy. He says, and I shall bring a curse. He, he says, I shall bring a curse on myself and not a blessing. Why are you worried about bringing anything on yourself, Jacob? See, that's this self-centered idea, philosophy. You're worried about what you, what's going to happen to you. Trust in the Lord and give it to him. That's how grace works. He gives us blessing. You don't have to earn it for yourself. Jacob, he's, his mind is just on how do I get this for myself? What's going to happen to myself? I'm gonna get, I'll bring a curse on myself. Jacob, just trust in the Lord to give you what you need. God's already promised you he's going to bless you. You're going to get the blessing. Why are you doing this, Jacob? That's, a, you know, Jacob is living a life of works right now. The law, legalism. But he's going to learn. Just wait. We're going to see a beautiful transformation in Jacob's life. But Esau was a hairy dude. Wow. Check this out. I found a picture of a goat in Israel. That is the goat. The very goat that Jacob, no, I don't know. But this is just a typical goat in Israel. So Esau, man, he was a hairy dude. And if that's on his neck, ladies, wow. Some people like the chest hair, but strange, right? But they took this and he put it on his hands and arms and yeah, like all over. I just thought that was crazy. So now all four of these characters 
are walking in the flesh and trusting in their own plans and their own ideas. Esau is going along with Isaac's plan to give him the blessing. And Jacob is going along with his mother's plan to steal it. All four of them are writing a blueprint for humanistic psychology. Do they really think they can do any of this against God? Yes. They don't believe his word. It was two chapters ago for us that we saw this promise that Jacob was going to get the blessing, but it was 40 years ago for them. Verse 18, so he went to his father and said, my father, he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? So right away, Isaac hears something wrong because Jacob goes, my father. <laughs> oh, uh, my father. He tried, right? And J Isaac's like, who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, I am Esau your firstborn. I have done just as you told me. Please arise, sit, and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you found it so quickly, my son? And he said to him, Because the Lord your God brought it to me. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near me that I may feel you, my son, whether you really are my son Esau or not. So Isaac is really doubting here. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, and, he's, and he felt him and said, Well, the voice is Jacob's voice, that's for sure. But the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother's Esau's hands. So he blessed him. And he said, after he blesses him, he said, Are you really my son Esau? And he said, I am, I, I am, I am. So he said, Bring it near me, and I will eat of my son's game, and so my soul may bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father said to him, Come here and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him, and he smelled the smell of the clothing and blessed him and said, Surely the smell of my son is the smell of the field which, my Lord, which the Lord has blessed. So basically, Esau had a ton of B.O., and when he put on the clothes, that was the thing. He's like, oh, nobody smells that bad except Esau. Man's man. <laughs> but there's a really neat lesson in these verses for us. Isaac was tricked, deceived. How was he tricked? Because he didn't trust the word that he heard. He trusted what he felt. He trusted what he smelled. He trusted what he tasted. But he didn't trust the word that he heard. Just like, and this is just like his relationship with God right now. This is just a perfect picture. He, he isn't trusting the simple word that God gave him. Isaac, I'm going to bless Jacob. How difficult is that? But he's like, no, I see and I, I feel different and I smell different. Everything goes against me wanting to believe that simple word of God. And that's how we can get tricked in our life as well, in our senses. And it's how humanistic psychology tricks us as well, is trust your senses 
and your thoughts and your ideas instead of the word of God, the word that you've heard. I really don't care if it makes sense to you. Trust God's word anyway. Anything else will trick you. That's the truth. Isaac is in the middle of being tricked by his own flesh. His nose is tricking him. It's not his son. But he gives more credence to what he can feel and smell than on the truth revealed to him. God didn't have to reveal the truth to him. He could have said, I want you to live by what you can sense. But he didn't. He said, no, reject that. Trust what I tell you. Because your senses can get all wonky. His flesh, Isaac's flesh, wants Esau to be blessed so bad. His flesh is like, that's what I want my line to look like. That's what I want my children's children to look up to and say, this was our patriarch, Esau the mighty man. But God hates Esau. God is against Esau and his self-sufficient, self-loving heart. But Isaac didn't want to trust what he heard. How can we make decisions without going to the word of God first? We have to do that. We have to go to the word. We have to run things by the word and say, is what I'm deciding, should I get an abortion? Dude, what does the word of God say? Should I live with my boyfriend, girlfriend before we get married? It feels so good. Smells so good. Well, no. What does the word of God say? I was talking to someone before service and they were telling me about, they were going, went to counseling with this great Bible teacher and, and they kept asking questions and the Bible teacher didn't say anything except, oh, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? And the guy, Martin, asked him, why do you just say that? Like, That's all I need to say. That's your direction. That's what you need. Counseling, go to the Bible. It's the word that we have heard. It's the word given to us to hear. Well, look at verse 27. And he came near and kissed him, and he smelled the smell of his clothing and blessed him, said, Surely this is the smell of my son of the field which the Lord has blessed. Therefore, may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and the plenty of the grain of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be those who bless you. It looks like their little trick has worked. But in the end, it will end up destroying this family and their unity because they didn't wait for God to do it at the right time. God has already chosen Jacob. They didn't need to do any of this. Just wait. Isaac's not going to die for 43 more years. What's his hurry? He doesn't want the responsibility of leaving his family anymore, leading his family anymore. He doesn't want to be in control anymore. He's done with his life. He's tired. And so what's he do? He lets his flesh rule. He gets in. He says, I'm going to make, I'm going to, God is taking too long. I'm going to get this boat rolling. Train rolling. I don't know. Boats don't roll. Terrible illustration. God has already chosen Jacob. They didn't need to do any of this. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack 
concerning his promise. As some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any pit should perish, but it all should come to repentance. God has a desire for this family to be blessed. He loves this family, but they ruin the blessing God had in store for them because of their impatience. God works out all this so sovereignly to conform to his will that Jacob actually does end up getting blessed. He's pretty good at moving things around like that. But we can't say that he was blessed because they did this trick. That's not how it worked. Well, we're going to see Esau is not too happy about this. Look at verse 30. So it happened as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob and Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, that Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also had made savory food and brought it to his father and said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game. That's his accent. That your soul may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, who are you? And so he said, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Uh-oh, big trouble in the house right now. So Isaac trembled exceedingly. And in the Hebrew, there is no more emphatic way that it can describe the trembling. It means he totally was paralyzed by fear. He just realized he was found out. He was sunk. It was completely horrible what Isaac experienced. And he said, who? Where is the one who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate of it before you came, and I blessed him. And then it's got some dashes in my Bible. And it says, and indeed he shall be blessed. And those dashes represent a major change in Isaac. Isaac has been found out in his little scheme to go against God. And Isaac in these dashes, repents. Isaac changes his intention. And he says, you know what? God, God said he was going to bless Jacob. He is going to be blessed. I am going to align myself with what God says. One, two dashes is all it took. We'll come back to that in just a minute. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said, Bless me also, father. Me also, father. But he said, Your brother came in and with deceit and has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? Meaning deceiver. For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright. And now look. He has taken away my blessing. And he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? And Isaac said, answered and said to Esau, Indeed, I have made him your master. And all his brethren I have given to him as servants. With grain and wine I have sustained him. What shall I now do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me, me also, O oh my father. And Esau lifted his voice and wept. Isaac trembles because he realized he tried to go against God to control God, trusting in his own ideas instead of God's word. And what does it end up doing? He's going to get found out. Humanistic psychology never works. You can read their own studies of how well psychology works at fixing people. And it basically says it makes them worse. 
It's just the truth. God's will is better. We know Jacob is going to be a cool guy. He's going to trust in the Lord. We can't see it. I mean, we know that because we know the end of the story. Even though he's a loser right now and a goober right now, and he's selfish, but you know what? He's, gonna, he's broken and humble. And he's just, God's going to get him there. Isaac just can't see it. Ha, he's blind. But now God catches him in his own trick, trying to bless Esau. Later in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 20, the author of Hebrews gives us some insight into this story. And it'll blow your mind. It says, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Where was this faith? Isaac has been a total fleshly goober in this story. It was in those dashes. The smallest mustard seed of faith. God turns around for a huge blessing. Why? Because God loves these guys. God loves them. You know, here it is. After Isaac's attempt to thwart, he said, and he indeed shall be blessed. It's the simple statement of faith. I'm not going to fight against God anymore. I'm going to surrender to his will, to his plan, to his word. Turn with me to Hebrews 12. So then Esau, excuse me, is devastated. He's grieved. Esau is mad and he weeps in sorrow and brokenness. And he blames Jacob. He blames his father. He is only concerned with himself. These are the tears of frustrated selfishness. The same tears that so many people have and will cry when they take their self they take their self-sufficiency against God's grace. Saying, I don't need you, God. I don't need your promises. I don't need it. I have my own plans. I have my own ideas. I have my own philosophy. I have my own opinions. I'm really good inside. I don't need you to change my heart. I don't need to depend on you daily. I don't need to be in your word daily. I don't need to surrender. No, I am a man. I have gone to school. I have, gone, I have a degree. I am fine. That's what's going on here. But is that, the end of that, I wish people could see, is tears and weeping. You're not fine. And you're going to end up broken and alone because you're not fine inside. You need God and his holiness. That's what it ends up with. It's amazing how this world thinks you can say, I have an opinion. And it somehow is immunity from being told that you're wrong. Oh, you have an opinion. Okay. In this world today, that's magic words from anyone telling you you're wrong. Well, this is just my opinion. Well, it's dumb. It's not according to truth. As so many, I could go off on that, but I will spare you. But look at Hebrews 12, verse 15. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for a morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Esau is the poster boy for this humanistic psychology, the self-centered worldview. You can't, 
In this verse, what it's telling us is you can't repent from falling short of the grace of God. You can't, if you fall short of grace, you're rejected, it says. No matter how much you cry and plead, you can't be saved after you reject grace for your life. He says, looking carefully, lest any of you should fall short of the grace of God. How do we do this? If it, it's telling you guys, us, to look carefully at each other and make sure that the guy next to you, the girl next to you, isn't falling short of grace. How do we do that? We have to teach each other how to live in humility. Pride is what keeps you from grace. Pride equals self-sufficiency. So anytime one of your brothers or sisters or you're walking along and say, oh, I got this, say, bro, stop. You don't got this. That's pride. You're, you're, ah, you're making yourself an enemy of God's grace and that will lead to rejection and bitter tears. Remember Esau. It didn't end well for him. I am at war and each one of us should be at war with humanist psychology. I hate it. I'm at war with it in my own heart because it's there in my own heart every time I say, I got this. I don't need you right now, God. Lest there be any root of bitterness springing up and cause trouble that we may become defiled. That's what Hebrews says happens. And, and so we can get bitter that God says we can't do it alone. That's what happens. That's why the world hates us as Christians because we say, I can't do this. And they say, it's weak people that are Christians. It's people, yes, that's exactly right. You have to say, I'm weak and can't do it to be a Christian. You do. It's the only way you can accept help. And so you can get easily get bitter at God though. And that's what it says. This is this root of bitterness springing in. What's it do? It causes trouble, major trouble. Why? Because you end up thinking you can do it on your own and it causes you trouble. We have to stay in a place of humbly trusting the Lord for everything and not getting bitter about it. So God has given you a terrible job. Don't get bitter about it. He's trying to keep you humble. So God made you ugly. Don't get bitter about it. God's keeping you humble. So many applications to this. Don't get bitter at God. He wants you to be humble. Why? So he can bless you. What was Jacob's point in blessing? God wants to bless. God wants to give grace and good things to you. But he has to have humility to do that. Helping each other remember that it, not to trust in ourselves, in our flesh. That is our job. That is our ministry to one another. Don't trust in your flesh. All right, so... We're going to finish out the chapter here. Verse 39. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and the dew of heaven. By your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother and it shall come to pass when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. So Isaac prophesies over his son Esau. Verse 41. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing. See, the flesh hates it when God gives grace to the humble. That's why the world, I've heard so many times the world say, you Christians, you're just weak and blah, and I hate it. They hate our humility. They hate when you say, I need God every day, because they say, I don't. I don't need him, because they don't recognize it, right? Esau hated Jacob, which their father had blessed them. And Esau said in his heart, 
The days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. And the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. And she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Yeah, surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee uh, to my brother Laban in Haran, and stay with him a few days. Now, this is like hundreds of miles to walk to stay for a few days, but we'll get to that later. Until your brother's fury, fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him, and I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be reaved of uh, also of you both in one day. And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. Those are Esau's wives. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth, uh, like these who are the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? So Rebekah is now dealing with the consequences of her sin, and this whole scheme is destroying her family. She thinks it's just going to be a few days. It ends up being 20 years before Jacob comes back. And she dies, never seeing her son again. That's the consequences of trusting in the flesh, trying to figure out your own stuff. It destroys the relationships that you hold so dear. The very thing you're trying to hold on to, it's like trying to grab water. It never works. The harder you grab it, the more it slips through your fingers. And that's Rebecca right now. We don't know the consequences of sin. She didn't know she was never going to see him again. We don't get to choose the consequences. God does. In all of this, if any one of these people would have just stood up and said, I'm going to trust God and his word and his promises, this whole disaster could have been avoided. Any one of the four of them could have stood up and said, hang on a second. No. There are a lot of disasters represented by the people in this room, there's been a lot of disasters in your, your lives and my life. Will we rise up? Disasters already passed and disasters yet to come. Are we going to rise up and say, I'm going to trust God and his promises today. I'm going to not fall short of the grace of God, fall short of the grace of God, but rise up to trust his grace. Is that going to be our decision? It flies in the face of humanistic psychology. It says, no, I can't do this. But I'm not going to grow bitter against God, against who I am, what he's made me, and what he's put in my life. I'm going to trust his word. His word says, I am with you. All the things that happen to you are for your good. But we don't like to believe it. Because we've been poisoned. Let God heal us as we come to communion now. And, and uh, we, we always do communion at the end of service to kind of let it be a, 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 you know, where we take what we've learned in our brain and let it migrate its way down to our heart. Because I know you guys paid attention with all your brains, but I can't see your hearts. Only God does in you. And we need these truths of trusting God to get from up here to down here. And that happens when we fix our eyes upon the works of Jesus Christ. And that's why we do this. That's why we come and have communion. So we're going to sing a song. During that song, we'll all stand up and we will, uh, you guys come down at your own uh, choice and, and take communion.
Father, we thank you again for a time in your word where we can just, it's so amazing to me how practical your word is for today, 2015, when our world is just obsessed with self. But I, I think actually it's exactly the same as the world that Isaac lived in and Jacob, that the world was obsessed with self. And Father, I thank you that you are, are good enough and loving enough to save us from ourselves, to save us from the evil and the wickedness that is inside us. And God, I pray that if there's anyone in here who has never once uh, never ch- made that choice to believe in the work of your son, to repent of their sins, agree with you saying that they're a sinner, Lord, I pray that today is the day that they would make that choice, that they would repent, Lord, believing that you have already saved them, that you will save them. You will continue to change them and make them new. God, I thank you that your mercy is new every day and that today we woke up and we came to church and you have spoken to us and that we can run back to you. Just those two dashes where Isaac realized, oh my gosh, I have been going against God. That he repented in his heart and we also can repent this very moment and say, I choose God. I choose to follow him. Keep us close to you, Jesus.